Turn to John 8 before it's too late. Turn to John chapter 8. <clears throat> we're going to look at a passage that I feel like is a, uh, we're, gonna, we're actually going to study this passage. Uh, that, it, that is, a, is an oft-abused passage of Scripture, John chapter 8. Uh, in fact, if you look at John 8, I was looking through a, a few commentaries this morning as I was, uh, as I was uh, putting it all together here, and uh, John, 7, John chapter 7, verse 51 through chapter 8, verse 11, which is the entirety of our passage that we're going to study today. I was looking through the commentary, and this particular commentary I had... It basically got to chapter 7, verse 51, and said, essentially, almost all respected textual critics believe that this was not part of the original text of Scripture. And you know what? They didn't comment on it. They skipped it. Like, didn't even, like, a lot of Bible, a lot of Bibles will, like, will bracket this section or have a note or whatever, and that's better than just removing it. I'll admit that's better because it is there. But to, to just act like it's not there, you know, it, do, it does make a difference if it's there. Listen, it does make a difference if it's there. And so, uh, so let's look at John chapter 8, verse 1 through verse number uh, 11. <clears throat> the Bible says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. And he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was... No, let me, let me re rephrase that. Verse 4. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus, Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw no, none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we come to you in asking for your grace and your help as we have met together. Well, Lord, we've, we have uh, sung some good songs. We have been reminded of your goodness and grace to us. We have had an opportunity to give tangibly to your, your purposes as an expression of our love to you. We've had an opportunity to fellowship somewhat and to learn already in Sunday school. Thank you for all these things. Thank you for your people being here. Lord, we thank you for the rain and thank you for 
the symbol of your, your goodness upon us uh, coming down from heaven. Lord, thank you for this passage of Scripture. We ask you as we study it that your, your presence would be among us, that you indeed would instruct us and we would heed the truths that are found in this passage. Lord, we pray for our church that you would help our church to be just exactly what you want it to be. You would help us all, each one, to be faithful, to be obedient, and to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Lord, please teach and, and, and uh, work among us. Teach where, uh, by your Spirit, in the ways that I can't. But Lord, help me to indeed to say the things I need to say and, and to say them in the way that you want me to say them also. So please give grace. Please bless your people with your word. And I pray that the word of God would effectually work in each one of them and in myself as well. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, this passage is often abused, um, and I think it's fairly obvious, but what we're going to do is we are going to, we're going we're gonna to just do a study of it. We're, we're going to kind of dive into it. So we, the important thing about being a Bible Christian is we need to know what the Bible says. We need to be intelligent about the Scriptures. And so that's what we're going to do. So Jesus is teaching uh, in the temple. He went out to the Mount of Olives. He came back into the temple in the morning. And he's teaching, and he is interrupted in verse 3 by the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, these people are not his friends. We know because in verse number 6, and, and this, verse number 6, what it does is it, it colors the whole, the whole event. It, it casts a light upon the entire narrative. Because you can't read anything without that light of verse 6. Because verse 6 gives us insight into the motives of these accusers. And so that helps us understand why they're doing what they're doing and why Jesus is doing what he does. So verse 6 says, just to skip down, it says, This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. So they brought this woman caught in adultery. Look at verse number 3. Now, I'll just say at the outset, I take it at face value. I don't see anything in the text that indicates that she was not actually caught in the act of adultery. I don't, I don't see anything in the text. Jesus didn't say that. And so we take it at face value that that's what actually had happened. This woman was caught in that. Verse 3, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now I'll try to be discreet here, but... The last I checked, if you're going to take someone and catch someone in the act of adultery, as the text says, in the very act, the other person is there too. Do I got that? Does everybody, do we have that right here? Now, it's one thing if you had heard something about somebody, but if, if this is as it's described, which it is, then there ought to be two people brought to Jesus, but the, alas, <laughs> There is not. And it begs a question. Where is the man? And that's an important question for this context. This is, again, this is why it's important. We're Bible Christians. We know the Bible. We know the Bible because this little detail is so important in this passage. Where is the man? Could it be that the man, I don't know the answer to that, but just positing a few things. Could it be that the man was somebody that was on friendly terms with these scribes and Pharisees. 
It could be. It could be the man was a man of reputation. But there is an important, it does bring up an important question. You know, these people bring this lady that's caught in adultery and they, 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 they set her right there in front of Jesus. Imagine being that lady. Now, I, 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 well, we're not going to cut corners here. This lady, again, taking at face value that she has been caught in the act of adultery, I mean, she, is, she has done wrong, a grievous sin, all right? But imagine being her. Jesus is teaching all these people in the temple. The temple is a very, very public place. And this lady is, is just basically dragged from that circumstance. Is she clothed? She's dragged and just set right in front of probably hundreds of people. Now, the reality is that what she had done is shameful. No, I should say what she and the man had done is shameful. It deserves to be shamed. It does not deserve to be covered for. It deserves to be shamed. But see, these men, again, verse 6, these men, these scribes and Pharisees, are not interested in what this woman had done. They are not interested in righteousness. They're not interested in truth. They're not interested in holiness. And how do you know that? So they give, just like as always, these, these hypocritical Pharisees, Jesus said, scribes and Pharisees, that's the ones mentioned. Hypocrites, that's what Jesus said to them. They, they were on their way to hell. They were, they were some of the worst sinners Jesus encountered, according to Matthew 23. But they had the appearance of being righteous. And so in following that line, following that, that, that desire to appear righteous, they brought this woman and made the appearance before the, the crowd that they cared about truth and righteousness and morality in their nation. But they didn't. Verse 6 lets us in on that secret. If they cared for and had a true, passionate desire for righteousness as they had claimed, and as we know from Sunday school, that's the fear of the Lord, Right? They would, have, they would have been just as interested in bringing the man and the whereabouts of that man as they were the woman. But they weren't. It was all a pretext. It was all a pretext. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us this. Whenever you see someone, or perhaps it's found in us, I hope not, but, but sometimes I'm afraid we play the hypocrite from time to time. But if we ever see someone who seems to be so energetic against something, so energetic, so passionate against some, they, they love to condemn a certain uh, moral ill or evil, as we might say. If we find that person, but here's the thing, but they're not as passionate and they're not interested in the appearance of that evil but in this one little circumstance, they're not interested in the appearance of that evil in themselves. They're not interested in the appearance of that evil in their friends. They're not interested in the appearance of that evil in their family. In other words, they're so vociferous, they're so they're passionate and earnest about how wicked something is in this circumstance, but over here they don't say boo. Over here they're not interested. You know what that shows? It's a show. 
what that shows is they're a hypocrite. Their outrage and their opposition is a show. Listen, if we are going to hate on sin, which, of course, in Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. If we're going to hate on sin, we must hate it in all of its appearances. Right? Is that not what the Bible says? It says, it says uh, all appearance of evil. In every, way that it, in every way that it might show its face, we're to hate it. And that means sometimes when it shows up in us, we also have to hate it there too. But if we don't hate it in us or in our friends and our family and our loved ones or, or whatever, you know, close people might, that we might love, and I love people that do things I don't like, but if we don't hate it there just as much as we hate it in this other circumstance, then we got a problem with our, our outrage. We, we need to hate it in every place that it appears, in every place and it appears. Now, look at verse number, the next verse, look at verse number five. Now, Moses and the law commanded us, this is what the Pharisees and the scribes are saying, that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Why does it matter what Jesus said? They don't believe in him anyway. They, why didn't they act on what the law said, hypocrites? They wanted, to, they wanted to provide a pretext to tempt Christ. They wanted to put him in a position because they knew he was friends with publicans and sinners, and this lady is a sinner. They knew that he was, that he was a, a friend of sinners, and, and they knew, they thought, that Jesus would just kind of passively, oh, well, it's not that bad, whatever, and they wanted to pit him against the law that he said he kept. Now, this is an important point, doctrinal point. Y'all, y'all like doctrine, right? Sink your teeth into some doctrine here. Jesus was born under the law. That's what Galatians says, right? That means the Lord Jesus Christ was subject to the law of Moses. He was born under that economy. He was required. He put himself in a place where he was required to keep the law of Moses. And here's the thing. He's the only one that ever kept it. (laughs) The reality was he was the only one that ever kept it. And that, you, you see, the fact that Jesus kept the law, all those commandments, without violating it even once, that means that he was put under scrutiny, right? Brother David, he was put under scrutiny. He was tested by the law of God, which was the holy standard of God. He was, it was, he was examined and found holy. And being found holy, he was fit to be our substitute, you see. That's why it's important that he was under the law. And that's, this is no exception. This whole circumstance occurs, and this is, again, the importance of the context. It all occurs in the economy of the law. They, all of these people are under the obligation to keep the law of Moses. Now, let me say a few things about that. Turn to, while you're turning to Leviticus chapter 20, I want to say something about this that's important for us to understand. Leviticus chapter 20, Gen, uh, um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those are the main portions that deal with the law of Moses, Okay. Those books of the Bible were written and given to the Jews and were obligatory to the Jews, okay? Those things governed not only what we would call morality, like things like adultery, not only things that we might say as a spiritual, spiritual things, although it did, it did cover like hatred and stuff like that, Many of those laws in the law of Moses dealt with society, what we would call civil laws. Things like uh, regulations about the things, the, the kind of things, places you can go and ways you can marry and, and uh, what had to be done at certain times of the year and, and 
But one of the things that's mentioned in there in the civil part of the law is this, is there were judgments and there were punishments. We would call them sentences for certain crimes. And adultery was against the law of Moses. But, and of course, we know adultery is wrong as well, but, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But in addition to adultery, there was a civil penalty in the law, and that penalty was death. God gave that penalty. That was what God said. When Remember, the Old Testament law had the civil part and it had the spiritual part and they overlapped because God was the ruler. This is not our country. Our country's not that. We, our country at best, our nation's laws at best have a foundation that's built on biblical truth. That's what we hope, right? Right? But it is a government of man. It is, it's, it's, uh, it's value system, we hope, reflects the Lord's value system, but it was not established by God directly like we read in, in Israel. This was established by God directly. Every word of it, every sentence, every crime, every punishment, every sin was established and set by God himself. There was no voting. <laughs> there was no Congress. There was no president. The law of Moses was given by God. That is the context of all this. So when we get to Leviticus chapter number 20, look at what it says. Let me get there myself because I've been talking instead of turning. Leviticus 20, verse number 10. says this, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's pretty clear. It's pretty clear. Again, we're talking about this is the civil penalty for a crime, which is also a sin. You know, we have crimes. You know, let me give an example. If you park in the wrong parking spot, and you get a ticket. I don't know if that's considered a crime. That's, that's more of a, what do they call that? A civil infraction? Yeah, citation. But just take that as an example. Is parking in a parking space a sin? Uh, is parking in the wrong spot a sin? No. Like God doesn't say anything about parking in the Bible, so it's not a sin. Okay? But it is a, but it is a crime, a, a, civil, a civil infraction. Okay? But there are other things that are both crimes and sins, like theft, like murder. In our country, did you know adultery is not a crime? But it is most definitely a sin. I talked about in Sunday school about people living together before they're married. That's not a crime, at least in our modern day, but it is most certainly a sin. So sometimes they overlap and sometimes they don't. In the law, they always do. In the law, they overlap. Because there's a civil part and there's a spiritual part. All right. Don't, lo don't, don't lose me, okay? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 22, if you would. I told you we're going to do a study, so we're going to learn, okay? Is everybody okay with that? Awesome. <laughs> Who said no? Yes. Of course. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. 22, verse 22. Now, if reading these passages of Scripture on adultery make you uncomfortable, not because you're involved in that, I sure hope, sure hope you're not, but because 
of what they say is something that's not commonly, it's very strict. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, look what it says. If a man be found lying with a woman married to an husband, then they both, then both of, they shall both of them die. Both the woman that lay with, both the man that lay with a woman and the woman. So shalt thou put away evil from Israel. 23. If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed unto an husband, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then ye shall bring them both out unto the gate of the city, and ye shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because he hath humbled his neighbor's wife, so shalt thou put away evil from among you. Here, we get, here again, this is now in Deuteronomy. If you would, go back to chapter 17 of the same book. We'll see one more thing. Now hear me, both, this is where the Pharisees and the scribes were talking about. Number one, it was unlawful for a person to commit adultery, whether it's a man or a woman. Both parties were guilty. Deuteronomy 22 and, uh, and Leviticus chapter 20 both say that both the adulterer and the adulteress are guilty of death. Both say that, okay? But this was a, explained as a crime and the punishment was death. You say, well, that's harsh. I want to tell you something. If we say that is harsh, one of two things is happening. Number one, we have allowed the world to soften what we think of sin. Almighty God said this, this, this text we're reading. This is what he thinks of it. Now, this, this passage cannot be used to say that if someone in the church is found committing adultery, we're going we're gonna to stone them. That would be a wrong use of Scripture. That's wrong. However, it most certainly does tell us what God thinks of it. So if we think, well, that's harsh, the problem is, is that we have, we have allowed the world to dictate the severity of sins to us. Or we have grossly misunderstood John chapter 8. And that's possible too. Now, Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, notice what it says. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness shall he not be put to death. He shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him to, be put, to, to put him to death. And afterward, the hands of all the people. So thou shalt put away the evil away from among, put the evil away from among you. I right, say, so here's the rule. This is, remember, this is the civil law of the Old Testament, okay? Follow me now. I'm going somewhere with this. So if a person did something that God said that the sentence was death, no sentence could be carried out unless there were at least two witnesses. So we got this idea in the Old Testament, they just killing everybody left and right, and we do see it. But that wasn't what the law said. The law said there had to be two witnesses. Furthermore, the law said, again, why am I talking about this? We're not under the law. Why am I talking about this? It's because we're reading John chapter 8, and all of that occurs under the law. All right? So you had to have two witnesses. Furthermore, the witnesses 
they are the ones that had to be willing to cast the first stone. You see what I'm saying? Now, I don't know about you, but that's a high standard. <laughs> that's a very high standard. The, 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 the moral standard is very high. Adultery, punishment is death. But the standard to execute was also very high. Now, go back to John. The first thing I want us to see is this. I know we read verse 11 in isolation where Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. And we allow that to interpret the whole passage and that's not correct. That verse does not stand alone. And we get the idea that Jesus is somehow okay with adultery. Of course, we would never say that. But that is the clear implication. If Jesus didn't throw the stone at her, then he knows everything. If he didn't throw the stone at her, then it must be that adultery is not as bad as we read in the Old Testament. After all, the Old Testament is the Old Testament. We're not under the Old Testament. That's the old laws. That's where all the legalists go. Right? But let me give you another perspective. First of all, we accept that the Old Testament is the Word of God. Do we not? Can I get a little nod? It is. And the Old Testament, for the period for which it was written, which is under that Old Testament system, was given by Almighty God Himself. Yea, His finger, just as Jesus' finger wrote on the ground, God's finger etched in those tablets. <laughs> there was not even a human intermediary for the Ten Commandments. God wrote them with His own finger and gave it to Moses. You can't say that that wasn't what God said. You know what? That accurately reflects what God thinks of sin. That's, that's principle number one. So if we say anything other than that, well, I think God, I think God feels this way. I, I don't care what you think. This is what God said. You see what I'm saying? That's the first thing, first thing we have to accept. How serious, then, must adultery be in God's sight? How serious must it be in God's sight? Adultery? And adultery comes in various forms. Adultery comes in various forms. It is not only done physically. Adultery can, can happen in the heart as well. How serious it must be to God if in His law and in His civil economy He gave a sentence of death. It was a death penalty offense. This is not something to play with. This is not something to play with. David, when he was caught in adultery with Bathsheba, the prophet came to him and said, you remember, thou art the man? And David said, I have sinned against the Lord. He not only committed adultery, he says murder. Why is it that we look at someone who commits murder and we say, well, they deserve to die, and that's right, but we look at somebody who commits adultery and we're like, well, maybe just, maybe a good whipping. God help us to, to be pure from this because this is a serious matter. Furthermore, the Lord repeats it. Jesus himself said this, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, 
that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus did not condone adultery. Even though people use John chapter 8, specifically verse 11, to say Jesus condoned it, here in, John, in Matthew chapter 5, he does not condone it. In fact, he says it's not just the physical part you need to worry about, it's also where your heart is. He did not condone it. And remember, adultery is not wicked primarily. Now, please, please hear me. This is an important point. I said in Sunday school that I was going to talk about the philosophy of the world, right? The worldview that this world holds. Adultery is not wicked primarily because it hurts the other spouse. It's not wicked primarily because it harms the kids. It's not wicked primarily because it's an act of betrayal. Is, does adultery harm the other spouse? Yes. Does adultery hurt the kids? Yes. Does adultery, is adultery an act of betrayal? Yes. Are all three of those things wicked? Yes. But that's not its primary wickedness. This is the way the world describes it. Remember I told you that something, the world describes something as evil essentially is if it hurts another person. Those three things hurt other people. Is that wrong? Yes. Is it wicked? Yes. But that's not the primary sin of adultery. Adultery is wicked because God looks upon it and hates it. It is an offense to God. Notice what Jesus said. I just, I just read it to you, Matthew 5. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. You know what that means? He hasn't hurt anybody. He's looking, and something is happening inside of him. He's not, he, he, there's no act of betrayal that's aware of, uh, that the wife is aware of, or the husband is aware of. He's not hurting his kids in any way. He's, nobody even knows. It's just in his heart. And Jesus condemns it the same, you see. No one is harmed. This is why I say that adultery is primarily, first and foremost, an act against God. J David, you remember David in Psalm 51, when he is, when he is you know, after Nathan came to him again and David confessed, he wrote that psalm. You know, he aired his dirty laundry, man. God aired it and then David said, Lord, I deserve it. <laughs> True repentance, right? But David had done this adultery and murder and he said this. In Psalm 51, he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. The reality is he had hurt Uriah, all of Uriah's family. He had hurt Bathsheba. There's a baby that's going to die. All of these ripples, not to mention the judgment that came on the, 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 the nation and all those things. All those things hurt other people. But what did he say? Lord, it's against you. Here's the problem is sometimes we, we get this idea that if we, can get, if we can make it so nobody finds out, then it's okay. That is, that is what happens with adultery. It's hiding it. Well, if I can keep it hidden, it'll be okay. Nobody will ever find out. But God knows, and it is an offense to Him. No one knows but God, and that is enough. Now look at verse 6. 
This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. This is a, I'm not going to get hung up here. What did Jesus write on the ground? I have no idea. Some people say he was writing the Ten Commandments. Maybe. It does overlap with the fact that God wrote the Ten Commandments with his finger, as the text says here. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. The text doesn't say. God doesn't want us to know. Another idea people say is maybe he was writing the very things we read earlier in the law about who should be put to death and reminding them maybe of what the law said about that because it had an effect upon them, obviously. I don't know what it says, and it doesn't really matter. Otherwise, the Lord would have told us. So let's move on. Verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now, we use the term cast a stone. Don't cast, don't cast stones. What do we mean? Criticize, right? But in this text, he is not referring to criticism. Remember, context. He's talking about picking up a rock and bashing someone's brains out. <laughs> you understand? And we're, we, we think of stone as, you know, picking up a, go, a, a golf ball or a baseball-sized stone. That's not what stoning involves. Stoning involves picking up a stone, you know, the praying hands, a stone, raising above your head and slamming it down on their, on their head as hard as you could to kill them. It was brutal. This is, this is not just mere criticism. When Jesus said, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. This verse is often wrongly used to provide cloak, a cloak and protection from criticism from those who are engaging in sin. They say, how dare you say, if you're, if you're without sin, let's cast, let you, then, then whoever's without sin, let him cast a stone. But we're not talking about criticism here. We're talking about the death penalty, right? Even the term, he that is without sin among you. You know, you think about the Old Testament. What did that, what did, now think with me now, be, be, be smart. Think about what it said. It said that no one could be put to death unless there were two witnesses, and the witnesses had to be the first to lay their hands on the person, right? In other words, to cast the first stone. Were those, were those two witnesses without sin ever? Answer me. Could, those, could any two people on earth ever cast a stone in that case? No. You see, that's what, when Jesus said he is without sin, he's not referring to this absolutely like if you've never sinned before in your life. <laughs> because the Old Testament had a way for witnesses to actually carry out the death penalty, even though they, had, they were sinners themselves. This is talking about in the context of this. You see, these people had brought this woman and in doing so had perverted the law. They had sinned. Otherwise, they would have the man there. Otherwise, they wouldn't have even been there because what does Jesus have to do with it? And the truth is, the people that brought this lady were probably guilty of adultery themselves for the Pharisees had a practice of any time they got tired of their wife, just write, her, just write her a bill of divorcement and send her out and go get another wife, which is also adultery. So this is not saying, if you have never sinned before in your life... <laughs> I mean, who, who in the world could do it then? That's not what he's saying at all. 
And that would have contradicted the Old Testament's, again, which Jesus was bound to obey. He put himself under the law. He had to obey it. Okay? Verse 11. So one by one they left. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw no one but the woman, he said, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? Stop. There were no witnesses. So according to the law, she could not be put to death. It's that simple. Now, does that mean that morally and spiritually she was innocent? No. When you read the word condemn in this passage, you, this is the condemnation that we read about in the law in which your, your brains will be bashed in by a rock. This is not moral or spiritual condemnation. That's something different. But again, these witnesses were gone. If there had been witnesses, they left. There was no one left to accuse her. And here's the kicker. What right does Jesus have under the law to condemn her? Now, we know that Jesus knew what she was, what she was uh, involved in. Of course, he knew everything. He, he was omniscient. He knew what she was involved in. But under the law, he had no grounds to stone her because he was not a witness. They brought her to him. You know what Jesus is doing here? He's just following the law. <laughs> Isn't that fantastic? He's just following the law. He's doing just exactly what the Father wants him to do. Now, verse 11. We're almost finished. She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now let me ask you a question. We've studied all this. We know that Jesus was under the law. We've read the law. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus condoning adultery? then why does it say, neither do I condemn thee? Because he's referring to the stoning, the condemnation. We say, even, even when we say uh, someone has a court case and they're found guilty and then they're, they're, they're sentencing, the jury comes back and says they recommend the death penalty and the judge condemns them to death. We use this same term. Jesus under the law had no right to condemn this person. He was lawfully, he was not lawfully able to do it. But it should not be assumed that because the Lord did not legally condemn her, that the Lord, Lord morally condoned her sin. That he did not do. You know what he gave her? He gave her mercy. The law, listen now, the law, the civil penalty could not be applied to this woman legally. But the moral could. She was guilty. Jesus says, Go and sin no more. So, although Jesus does not raise a stone to kill her, though he knew she had done it, he did not condone what she had done. It, it did not make it any less. Think about the man. Where's the man? See, people think, well, the man just escaped. He's, he, he escaped at all. He's not under, under scrutiny or condemna condemnation or anything. And so he, just, he got out of it. No, he did not. 
He might not have gotten the civil penalty, but he's still going to have to stand before God and give an account for what he had done. That's the thing we think. If nobody finds out, then I'm good. If I don't get in trouble, I'm good. No, you're not. No, I'm not. But Jesus wanted to give him mercy. Last verse I want you to look at. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The Bible says that mercy rejoiceth against judgment. That means simply, if there's a choice between mercy and judgment, the Lord is going to err on the side of mercy. He doesn't err, we know, but he's always going to lean toward mercy. But mercy does not mean he excuses or approves of that conduct or that that conduct is not just as wicked as the scripture says it is, because it is. We got this idea that if something bad doesn't happen to me the moment, five minutes after I sin, that somehow God's okay with it. It's not that way. This lady might get this idea, well, they didn't stall me, so I'm good. No, you're not. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, the Bible says this. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Now look at this list. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor, what's it say? No, after idolater. Adulterers. Nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice this. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Here's the key. In that list of what we Christians, we believers, used to be is the word adulterer. In other words, what this woman is, what this woman is at this moment, she can still be forgiven of it. Because many of us have done things that are in this list, and yet here we are, forgiven, washed, sanctified, justified. Those who are once adulterers can, can be forgiven. Christ saves adulterers. That's what this, this text tells us. Maybe the Lord forgave this woman. He said, go and sin no more. He knew she had sinned. And maybe she'd be forgiven and she'd go on and she wouldn't do it again. She would, she would have a, a truly changed heart. Maybe that happened. Maybe it didn't happen. We don't know. But we do know that Christ saves adulterers. In fact, that very sin that that woman had committed and all those sins we read in 1 Corinthians 6, on, on, upon the Lord were those sins laid. He died as if he committed those sins. You see. So certainly the Lord can forgive adulterers he can have mercy on adulterers. That's true. But think about the consequences. Maybe the Lord forgave this woman, but the shame that that sin caused is not simply wiped away because God forgave her. The shame remains. That should be a good argument for us to not do it in the first place. Amen? Because that shame, God will forgive you. But that doesn't mean everybody else is going to forget. When Jesus said, go and sin no more, 
Think about it. Well, hold on a second. Listen. Have you ever had, had have you ever talked to somebody about a, about about something they've done that they haven't repented of, and maybe they used to do it, and they when they'll say things like, "Well, God forgave me. You got to forgive me." Well, God forgave me. They say it real dismissively like that. Well, hold on. Just because God forgives us doesn't mean that all of a sudden all the ramifications and consequences of that thing are wiped away. That's not the way it works. But Jesus does forgive adulterers. And the last thing I want us to see is this. When Jesus said, go and sin no more, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6, verse, um, verse number 11, it says, And such were some of you. It, it causes me to think about this. What business then does a believer in Christ, a disciple of Christ, have to do with adultery? What business does he, does he have messing around with that? It says, Such were some of you. Jesus said, Go and sin no more. So now we're on the other side of this. The Lord has forgiven us. What are we doing messing around with this? Either in, in body or in heart. The believer has no business being near it, touching it, getting close to it. We ought to be avoiding it with all our heart and mind. Such were some of you. Amen. So we see that the Lord did not in any way condone what she had done. Nor did he dare anyone criticize someone who, who commits a sin. No, 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 no. The Lord was just doing just exactly what the law prescribed, while at the same time making that lady understand that she, she, she escaped by the skin of her teeth, yes, from the civil penalty. But that sin is still there in God's sight. And she needs to be forgiven. And she needs to be made right with God. Let's pray.